Hey there, welcome to another episode of LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank, your host. This week, we're going to be talking about environments. First up with comedian Phoebe Robinson, who likes the environment inside her house to be just so. As she explains in her new book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. Then we're going to talk to the actor Nick Offerman, who you might know as Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. In his real life, he really loves to get out in nature, and he's got a new book out detailing his travels to the great outdoors and uh, what he thinks we can do to take better care of the environment. Then we're going to hear some incredible music and have a chat with Adia Victoria about her new album, which explores her complicated relationship with the South as a black woman. Whatever environment you're in this weekend, if you're in the car, if you're doing dishes, if you're lying flat on the couch, we are glad you brought Livewire along. So stay where you are. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going very well. Uh, I'm wondering if you are ready for another round of Sly, station, location, identification, (laughs) examination. This is where I'm going to quiz you about a place. You try to guess where I'm talking about, okay? Okay, I'm so ready. (laughs) This city is home to the Little House on the Prairie Museum, which preserves the uh, homestead of Laura Ingalls Wilder. The homestead. So I know she was born near like Eau Claire, Wisconsin, but then they traveled to like, I think, Mm -hmm. Missouri? You're close. It's not Missouri? This is not in Missouri. This is an, um, a more, let's just say, Jayhawk country. Ah, rock chalk. That's Kansas. Okay, that's the state. It's not so much a city name as a thing that we're all seeking, particularly as we mm. become adults. Chocolate cake, Kansas. <laughs> so <laughs> close. Independence, Kansas, oh. where we are on KANQFM, which is part of Kansas Public Radio. Woo. So hi to everyone listening on K-A-N-Q-F-M. All right, speaking of our radio show and listening to it, should we, uh, should we get to it? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, comedian Phoebe Robinson. You were in a New York City taxi. That is a Petri dish. You are not going to lie down this pillow. Actor and humorist Nick Offerman. You know, you develop a civilization where there's water and where there's salt. Then you find a place where you can buy athletic shoes and you're good to go. With music from Adia Victoria. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Lou. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. You put a little extra announcer on that. I did? It was great. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> when you said my name, it sounded real real Hollywood. That's exciting. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week, everyone. We have a great show in store for you. We have an audience question that we're going to be hearing your answer to coming up. We asked the audience, what's a household rule you struggle to enforce? And we're going to read those responses coming up. First, though, it is time for... The best news we heard all week. 
This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news you heard all week? Okay, very personal news. I'm sure that there's better news from other people's perspectives, but I, for the past 20 years, have been an extreme quarter head. Okay, like 25 cents, like the amount of money. Yes, yes, <laughs> those kinds okay. of quarter, yeah. Do you remember like... I think it was like 2000 when they started putting states on the backs of quarters and then they went on to like national parks and it was when I was working in coffee shops. So I had access to a lot of quarters and I was so excited. Like for a long time, I was really trying to get the one from Guam and I finally got the Guam quarter and it's still on our refrigerator. (laughs) I believe there was a story in the onion, the satire website that talked about some people were basically staying alive just to get to the end of collecting all of the quarters. Like it was yeah. giving people a reason to exist. Were you one of those people? Yeah, I think if they ever release quarters of people who are anticipating quarter releases, I think my You'd face be would it. be. But um, there's a new line of quarters coming out next year. Okay. Honoring notable American women. Cool. <gasps> I'm so- Who's going to be on there? <laughs> well, um, not me yet, but pretty soon. Give it time. Um, and not Stevie Nicks, which I, you know, I think I would love to have her on there. But um, people like Maya Angelou, nice. Sally Ride, Anna Mae Wong, who's this great movie actress who was in like something like 50 or 60 films. And she's part of this really interesting book that I love by Peter Ho Davies called The Fortunes. Wilma Mann Killer, who was the first female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Um, so that means like I have something to look forward to next year is every t- and, and I'm gonna use cash again, I guess. <laughs> right now now your system for collecting these is it going to be that you'll just be out in the world, you'll be paying with paper money and getting change, trying to catch them as they come into your life, or do you like go to the bank no. and ask them to like go through a roll of quarters? Does that feel like cheating to you? Yes, yes. And um David, my partner, uh, he's a bartender, so he has a lot of cash income. And then nice. he often buys things with cash, but never produces correct change. So he comes home with just <laughs> fistfuls of it. So we we work really well together that way. I just sift through the quarters and look for the new gems, the anime Wongs and the Maya Angelous that are coming in 2022. That is awesome. I'm so excited you have that to look forward to. Um, my best news story comes from almost the other side of the planet than where I'm standing right now, uh, the Solomon Islands where these two guys, a guy named LeVay Nanjikana and Junior Kolani, they set out to go on a trip. They were heading to an island called New Georgia Island, uh, which is about 200 kilometers from where they were. They'd made the trip before. They were in this kind of smallish motorboat, but like they knew what they were doing. You know, They're like from the Solomon Islands. They're very down with the ocean in that part of the world. Mm. Except on this particular trip, there was a storm that blew in. And it completely discombobulated their GPS machine, which then eventually broke. And it pushed them way out into the ocean to where they didn't know where they were, (gasps) couldn't see any land around them. And the storm finally passes, and they realize that they are now floating. And they're trying to save their fuel, but they eventually, uh, in trying to find their way out of there, run out of their fuel. They're eating. First, they start by eating some oranges they happen to have in the boat. Uh They run out of those. Then they start eating coconuts that randomly float by them in the ocean. (laughs) Okay. They have to paddle. They make some, like, oars out of something, and they also have some canvas in the boat, and so they rig up kind of a makeshift sail, and they're kind of getting around that way. They eventually end up near Papua New Guinea 29 days later. So for (gasps) 29 days, they're just floating around. They're finally rescued by a fisherman off of Papua New Guinea. But this was the amazing part. When they interviewed LeVay... Uh, Nanjikana, after they rescued him and got him onto Papua New Guinea and he was safe and sound, they asked him how it was and he said, well, I had no idea what was going on while I was out there. I didn't hear about COVID or anything else. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting back home, but I got to say it was kind of a nice break from everything. (laughs) Which tells you the state of the world. (laughs) When being lost at sea for 29 days is kind of a relief because you don't have to hear about COVID anymore. Oh, well, I don't know. I think I'd take being on land and learning about COVID. Maybe there's something in between. (laughs) Yeah. The isolation of floating around in the ocean off of uh, Papua New Guinea and how overly plugged in we all are. I just thought like... I can relate to that feeling of wanting to just sometimes completely disconnect from everything uh, that we're hearing about all the time, so much of which is not great news. But the fact that these two men survived and they're doing A-OK, well, that is the best news that I heard all week. 
All right, let's welcome our first guest on over here to Livewire. She is a stand-up comedian, a writer, a producer, an actress. She's also co-creator and co-star of the hit podcast, Two Dope Queens, which is also an HBO series. And she's also a New York Times bestselling author. Her latest book is Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. Phoebe Robinson, welcome back to Livewire. Thanks for having me, Luke. It's been too long. I know. It's really nice to see your face. Um, the essay that you kicked this new book off with uh, says that 2020 was going to be your year. Yeah. What, <laughs> what, what were you thinking going in, and how did it end up going for you specifically? I mean, weren't we all thinking that we were just going to knock it out the park? You know what I mean? We're like, finally, 2020 is going to be the bomb. Oprah had her like 2020 vision tour, and I was uh-huh. like... Fix your vision, bitch, because we are struggling. Like, my boyfriend was coming off the road touring, so this was going to be, like, our first time. We do, like, couple things together and, like, be around each other all the time. Well, And then we were truly around each other all the time. Right. And, like, weren't traveling and anything. So I think it went from sort of this, like, I'm going to crush it and killing it at work, life, relationship, to just sort of, like, okay, I'm just going to, like, make sure I have enough toilet paper. That's what it devolved right. into. Like people would be texting each other, like I saw some toilet paper at the yes. Kroger. You need to get over here fast. <laughs> yes. And I would go to the grocery store and people would be like running down the aisles with like a carton of eggs. Like it was no joke. Um, you obviously were still very productive though. Uh, you've got a production company, Tiny Reparations, um, that, that, that you founded. I mean, what's it like for you doing a lot of stuff that's now like more behind the camera or a little to the side where you're like the boss now? It's a lot of fun. We launched August, 2019, and then we went to COVID. And so we were working apart longer than we were working together in person. And it's been like a lot of fun. Like I really love producing, like we're developing an animated project, which is really cool. And then we we shot my um, stand-up special, which is coming out. So it's really cool to sort of be the boss and sort of think about all the like behind-the-scenes stuff as opposed to just the front-facing things. I'm having a lot of fun. I'm very tired. Um, I'm worrying about way more things than I ever thought I would worry about. But I like working with other people. So that always keeps me really entertained. But when I could just sort of slack off and do nothing, I'm also very happy. What is your, when when you're in your slacker mode, what does that like look like for your life? Oh, usually it is, oh, it's in the kitchen, but usually, so I go to Target and I get a family size box of Cheez-Its <laughs> <laughs> and it's just me. There's no family, no kids here. Um, my boyfriend's on the road. And so I'll get Cheez-Its, sit on the couch Turn on TV, it can either be Ted Lasso, Real Housewives, uh, Netflix documentaries, um, and then I'm just doing that for several hours. Like, that's my go-to. Uh, we're talking to Phoebe Robinson here on Livewire. Her latest book is Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. Uh, in the book, you have a whole chapter dedicated to this. You talk about having to tell a lot of folks, particularly guys who maybe have come over to your house, don't sit on my bed in your outside clothes. And you mentioned that the white guys are perplexed by this. What, what constitutes outside clothes? Yeah. So my boyfriend's this white British dude. Fantastic. Love him to The bits, British Bake Off, as you call British him in the book. British Bake Off. Yeah, I love him so much. And, you know, especially for someone like him who tours a lot. He's now, he's now back on the road touring with a rock band. But he travels a lot. So he's like in hotels and airplanes. And I'm going to just say, you know, airplanes are dirty. Hotels are mostly filthy. And so, you know, having lived in New York for so long, taking the subway, it's like, oh, it's disgusting. So to me, outside clothes is like any clothes that you wear outside of your door. Like even if you're just going to like Target or, you know, Trader Joe's for a run, that's outside clothes. And so truly when we first started dating, he would like get off the plane because we were, we were living apart. He was living in Portland when we first started dating. He would get off the plane take a taxi and then come here and then just like want to like jump into bed. And I'm like, you were in a New York city taxi. That is a (laughs) Petri dish. You are not going to lie down this pillow. So he really was like, Oh, it's, it's a big deal. And I was like, yes. And he used to like pack and like put his suitcase on the bed. And I'm like truly freaking out. And so now he's learned the ways that like anything that has touched public transportation is probably really, really gross. 
Uh, my guess is you get some of this from your parents who yes. you write about in the book are very, very clean people. And I actually want to talk about them and why they were low-key not interested in meeting Michelle Obama or at least not up for it. But we got to take a quick break here on Livewire from PRX. We're talking to Phoebe Robinson about her book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. Back with more in a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank talking to Phoebe Robinson about her new book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. Um, you, you have a line in this book where, where you say that your parents have zero interest in ever meeting anyone new for the rest of their life. Yeah. And also <laughs> that extended to uh, the chance that, that you sort of had for them to meet Michelle Obama and yeah. you had to sort of talk them into it. Like they were basically going to pass because it meant leaving oh. the house. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I moderated on Michelle Obama's book tour and then right. she was like, oh, we're doing the last show. It's a Mother's Day event in Nashville. I would love if your parents would come. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. So I tell them, I get on the phone with my parents and I tell them, I was like, look, you have been invited by basically the Queen of America. Like, this is so cool. And my mom was like, I don't know. This was like a month away. She's like, I don't know. I might be tired then. And I'm like, you know that you're going to be tired a month from now? I call bull <laughs> Okay, this is insane. Um, my parents are like, yeah, we'll get back to you. And I had to follow up with them and be like, guys, it's Michelle Obama. She is inviting you personally. And they were like, all right, okay, we'll go. And they had a great time, but they sure. were just like, you know, they're, you know, they've been alive for a really long time in their 60s. They're just like kind of like over it. And I get it. I'm the same way too, but I'm like, it's Michelle Obama. You have to like do everything to meet her. One of the things that you write about in this new book that you weren't extremely jazzed about during the pandemic were lots of white people posting <laughs> pictures on social media of themselves holding the book White Fragility and talking yeah. about how they had learned a lot. Why, why was that something that was not making you, uh, <laughs> was not filling you with joy, as Marie Kondo would say? <laughs> yeah, Marie, you're right. This is not filling me with joy. I think it was just... You know, there have been so many anti-racism educators for decades, mm -hmm. and then now people are like, oh, I'm going to acknowledge that racism exists because this one white lady wrote about it. Hmm. And it just sort of made me go, okay, I'm so glad you read something, got a little bit of education, but now I need you to put that into practice. I think people just felt like they read the one book and that's all they needed to do. And I'm like, no, 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 we have to, like, fully change society. You know what I mean? It'd be like... Yeah. If I could do was like, oh, well, I read a, a book by Gloria Steinem, so I like helped solve sexism. It's like that's not that's like not enough, you know? Yeah. And obviously you don't speak for all people of color. But what would you like just personally like to see white people doing more of? Yeah, I think getting more active in your communities and also sort of like the workplace environment, like 
There's so many places that I worked at where I was like one of few women or one of the few people of color. And I'm always like, you know, if you hear of like a job opening, like make sure that HR is like interviewing people of color, people from the queer community and really like taking those extra steps to be more inclusive. Um, I think, you know, patronizing different businesses than maybe like your normal ones or just like small everyday things that if each of us can pick like one or two things that we're going to focus on, I think it'll make like a massive change. I think people look at like racism as like, how can I fix all of it by myself? And no one can. So you really have to like keep it small and keep it to like the local stuff and then it will grow from there. I think the last time we had you on the show, we were talking about your student loans. Yes. Yeah, because you write in this book about how the way that you work and your self-identity, I guess, was grown out of this feeling of, like, I don't have anything to fall back on. My parents can't pay this bill for me. I'm effectively a freelancer. I might make a lot of money sometimes, but no money other times. And just the psychological toll that that takes? Yeah, you just sort of feel, I think it's wrote in the book, you kind of feel like a stray dog where you're, like, always on the defensive and making sure... You know, like if I get this bit of work, I'm going to hold on to it for as long as I can. And so I think I definitely, as my therapist likes to say, she's like, you have poor girl brain. She's like, even though your circumstances have changed and you paid off your student loans and you got out of debt, you're still operating as though you have $60,000 worth of debt. And so I'm like slowly unlearning that I don't have to be fearful, that it's okay for me to rest. Like I don't have to take every freelancer job and I can sort of like, you know, just focus on me and like breathe for a second. But it's really hard to get out of that cycle if you've ever been in any sort of debt. You're all, and even now, like even though I'm less freaked out, I'm still always like, that was not that long ago that I was in debt mm-hmm. for a, a, a long time. So it's always in the back of my mind that it's something that I, I don't want to ever experience it again. Yeah. This book is really funny, but it's also insightful. You know, it, it, it covers a wide range of topics and you're such a funny writer that it'd be easy to just describe it as a sort of book of comedy, but it actually has a really, a lot of really important things to say about race and culture and and dirty clothes on beds. So, <laughs> Phoebe thank Robinson, you. thank you so much for coming on Livewire. My pleasure. That was Phoebe Robinson right here on Livewire. Her book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes, is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Martin Worm of Seattle. Martin is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which is a really big deal to us because otherwise we would not be able to keep doing the radio show. So a big thanks this week to Martin for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we ask the Livewire listeners a question in honor of uh, Phoebe Robinson's desire to not have people sitting on her bed in their outside clothes. We thought we would ask the Livewire audience this question. What's a household rule you struggle to enforce? Elena, you have been collecting up those responses. You've got them now. What are you seeing? Um, <laughs> how about this one from Tyler? The household rule in Tyler's house. Whoever discovers the cat puke must clean it up. <laughs> we have that rule at my house, but it's uh, whoever discovers the vermin that my murderous cat Spooner mm. has killed. I feel like most cat issues, be it you know whatever end of the cat this is coming out of, <laughs> are discovered by one's bare feet in mm. the dark, which is not great. Oh. Not to say that dogs aren't puking on stuff either. You know, like sure. there's plenty of pukey dogs out there too. Okay, okay. This is not, we're not turning this into an anti-cat segment, I promise. Um, Very pro-cat. All right, what's something else that uh, our listeners are having a hard time enforcing around the house? Speaking of dogs, I wonder if this rule has applied in your domicile. Sarah's Mm. rule, no dogs on the bed, or at the very least, no dogs in the bed. (laughs) (laughs) I had that rule with my dog, Rudy, my yellow lab, and it was... No dogs on the bed, no Rudy on the bed, unless I was feeling sad. 
You know what I mean? We got a bigger bed so we could fit all three of the cats in it. So we're, we're co-sleeping. <laughs> we're co-sleeping. It's very in vogue cat. these days. <laughs> all right. What's something else that our listeners are having a hard time enforcing? Uh, how about this one from Emma? Totally hits me where I live. Emma's mm. rule. I must read one book from my shelf before I buy a new one. (laughs) (laughs) I have totally tried to set that rule and nope. (laughs) What is it about bookstores and also like REI that are so fun and aspirational? (laughs) Like if I walk into Powell's Books here in Portland, I am not coming out with any fewer than five or six books. And hopefully I'll get to them. Hopefully I'll read them. But there's just something about seeing them and wanting to have the experience that's held therein, you yeah. know? It's like I just – it's very easy to acquire books. Uh, with this job, though, it's, it can be challenging to get through all of them. Well, let me give you some permission to buy as many books as you like right now because a lot of people are worried that distribution is going to be tough for small bookstores during the holidays. So if oh. you're the type of person who buys books for Christmas – Go to your local indie and and go crazy. Make it rain, but do it now, and then you'll have your Christmas shopping out of the way, and the indie booksellers won't be as pressed. I'm going right after we get done with the show today. (laughs) I'm beelining it for my local independent bookseller. All right, you might know our next guest for his role as Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec, a character who uttered such lines as, there's only one thing I hate more than lying, and that's skim milk which is water that's lying about being milk. (laughs) When he's not acting, he's also a prolific woodworker and the New York Times bestselling author of several books, his latest being Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, The Pastoral Observations of One Ignorant American Who Loves to Walk Outside. It is out now. Nick Offerman, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Uh, This book is uh, really fascinating. It it sort of kicks off with a conversation that you had with the writer Wendell Berry, um, where he encouraged you to look at conservation through the lens of of Aldo Leopold as opposed to um, John Muir. And you write in the book that you had no idea what he was talking about. I also had no idea what he was talking about when I read that passage. What was he talking about? Well, you know, standing back from it now, a couple years later, uh, it, it reminds me of when I first read Wendell Berry and it's a similar sort of epiphany or awakening where in the same way that I was a normal American, you know, like working class in my mid twenties, happily consuming, you know, like doing my bit in in capitalism. And suddenly somebody gave me these Wendell Berry stories that made me sit up and say, Oh shoot, we have totally been hornswoggled into uh, ignoring where our food comes from. Mm-hmm. And I even come from a farm family, and I have no idea where anything I eat comes from or how it's sourced or by whom. And then when Wendell told me to, uh, to look at conservation and nature through the lens of Aldo Leopold and John Muir, I said, oh, yeah, once again – I I feel like I'm among the vast majority that we don't just don't think about how we're using the resources of nature beyond the news stories that we might see about uh, the occasional oil spill or, or forest mm. fire. I, I love this topic. I love agrarianism and I live in, in the hills of Los Angeles. And only when he said that to me, I said, oh, yeah, like I've I, it never occurs to me to think about the health of my watershed or the soil of my community, all of which we're a very important part. You know, it's all part of the, of the cycle of nature. And so it gave me a great springboard for this book. I think so many of us think of you as the Nick Offerman of this current moment where you're well known for, you know, your woodworking and for your relationship with the outdoors and for your thunderous beards, depending on what character you're playing. You seem like you're this fully realized person. It was weird for me to think of a time where you were like Nick Offerman figuring out who he was, like you're building sets at Steppenwolf, but also acting in some productions. And like, you (laughs) could have taken a different path where like you're driving a convertible wearing sunglasses and wearing Gucci loafers. I mean, was that a possible part of the Offerman multiverse? Uh, You know, um, I think I still am figuring out who I am as it, as it goes. Uh, but, but Definitely. Uh, I had a moment when I first moved in with my now wife, Megan Mullally, the uh, the astonishing Megan Mullally. And uh, she was a couple of years into Will and Grace. And I was a woodworker working sometimes as an actor. 
and I had my first swimming pool with her. Mm. And I thought that's when I had that's when I sort of had it dangled in front of me, the, the Gucci mm. loafers moment. <laughs> and I tried. I, I took one day where I said, holy cow, I think I've made it in that Hollywood way. And so I tried, I smoked a joint and floated in my pool and put Neil Young on my outdoor speakers. Uh, poignantly, his, his early record, Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. Okay. And I got, I got through the f- opening track and about halfway through the second song, and I thought, well, what are you going to do, just lay around all day? Like, <laughs> You got one and a half songs into the debauched life of leisure of a, of a Hollywood type yeah. and realized it wasn't for you? I tried it out, and it was not for me. I, <laughs> I thought, oh, that's – no, I know about this. That's becoming more of, of an ass wipe. And I – like my – truly, my, my personal value is derived from like how I can be productive to myself and others – and laying in the pool, smoking a joint is not the answer to that question. You're listening to Live Wire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Nick Offerman about his new book, Where the Deer and the Antelope Play. Um, you set out on this hiking trip in uh, Glacier National Park with uh, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco and the writer George Saunders, um, uh, which to a, a certain kind of person, by which I mean me, Sounds like the dream week <laughs> in someone's life. Uh, what were you hoping to find out about about nature and yourself and your pals when you guys launched out on this trip? Well, I'll be honest. Uh, based on on the the sort of task that Wendell Berry set before me, I knew I wanted to tackle one of the big, gorgeous national parks, Yosemite or, or uh, Sequoia or, or mm-hmm. Glacier. And I have to give credit to Jeff Tweedy. We were playing a show together on New Year's Eve in Los Angeles. Uh, I was opening for him um, dreamily. And Mm -hmm. he said to me, we had this friendship between he and George and I. And he said, hey, for your book, why don't you and I and George go walk somewhere pretty together and and you can (laughs) record our conversations. And I mean, you know, (laughs) I said, "Uh, okay my hero of, of <laughs> thought and life. And, uh, and so I knew that, that my own interpretation of the park and the perspective that it would give me would really feed this idea that Wendell had put in front of me. But I also know that whenever I'm with Jeff and George, the things that they just muse about, I mean, they're, they're funny, farting, eating, you know, mammals, but they also <laughs> happen to be these incredibly beautiful, empathetic, poetic souls and so I think I say in the book that I, I always feel like the, the little brother riding in the backseat of their Trans Am, <laughs> like teaching me about Frank Zappa uh, and figuratively and sometimes literally George did get into fog hat a little bit on that trip. <laughs> um, it's I mean, I, I love I love to toss out a rejoinder here and then. But but by and large, the three of us are just the thing we enjoy about each other is we're all trying to figure out together as friends Mm. how to do better. Um, Mm. And that's, it's a nice thing. I mean, because when we each make mistakes as we invariably do, we can then lean on each other and say, Hey guys, I I did screw up number 17. And and Jeff will say, Oh, I did one of those in April and we can commiserate. (laughs) And it's, it's a beautiful triumvirate. Uh, I want to congratulate you. As we're recording this today, this book is the number one new release in the category of canoeing on Amazon. Hey! <laughs> um, I made it! Yeah. Speaking of which, you guys go on this like kind of whitewater rafting uh, adventure that sounds like it got a little bit more uh, e- exciting than you were expecting it to be going in. Because you're like a boat person. You know, you built canoes. You know how to be on the water. But this was a whole other thing. Sure. It, I mean... I- all credit to the uh, our cool guide, whose name was Demi. Um, I, you know, I had had whitewater rafting in quotes recommended to me many times over the years, <laughs> and I, I was like, yeah, I, you know, I do boats, as you said. I, I'm, I'm usually not available to go whitewater rafting because I'm usually in a boat with my family trying to catch largemouth bass. Uh, but on this trip, it made sense, and so I guess you know. It's the kind of thing that there's just no way to explain the experience, uh, the exhilaration of like plunging through rapids <laughs> without just doing it for yourself. 
And I have to say, it was incredibly thrilling, but I never felt uh, in danger. And I, I think that's that's a hat tip to the experience and the acumen of our river guides. You know, they know how to mm. steer through each of the several rapids. What was the name of that one? Fluffy Kitten Fall? Yeah, the, fir- the first one, she says, okay, we better start getting ready for Fluffy Kitten Rapids. And you're like, oh, okay, that sounds, uh, oh, oh, it's ironic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hold on. That's when Saunders lost his glasses, right? Or almost lost his glasses. That's right, yeah. If not for the quick work of Tweety, who then spent the rest of the trip kind of, um, you know, pointing out his heroics. Are you right? It's true, yeah. Uh, George's glasses somehow slipped off and and, uh, landed in front of Jeff on the side of the raft, and Jeff nimbly grabbed them. I mean, kind of astonishingly, before they were swept away. But then hilariously, I mean, the thing that's irksome about someone is is beautifully talented as Jeff Tweedy is that he's also incredibly sharply funny. Mm-hmm. And so when, when he lands a joke, like when I read his first book, uh, which is called let's go so we can get back or something like that. Like the first time he lands a killer joke, I was like, hang on, man. Like we should all maybe stay in our lanes a little bit here. <laughs> Jeff. Uh, he's so funny. And so it was, it was a running riff. Like we really were siblings where he kept bringing up sort of the unsung heroics of, of the saving of the glasses. Which have now been sung in this book where the deer and the antelope play. Uh, we're talking to Nick Offerman here on Livewire. The central thesis of this book sort of seems to be, uh, you know, nature is amazing. We owe it to this planet to engage with it. And uh, we also should do a better job of taking care of it. And yet you're also a person, as you write, you live in Los Angeles, a city that probably shouldn't exist on paper, or at least not should not exist in its current form of like sprawl and lawns and things <laughs> that are not naturally occurring in a desert that meets the ocean. How do you like personally square that for yourself? This, I think we all are thinking about this. What is the line between our own comfort and our own happiness and our own convenience and also keeping this planet hopefully livable for the next hundred years? Well, I mean, even the way that that, that we couch these thoughts, like how keeping our planet livable, the planet is not in trouble. The planet's going to be just It might be livable, but not for us. Right, exactly. (laughs) How do we keep us (laughs) livable? (laughs) And that's, that's the idea is, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm stuck in the middle of this human civilization with the rest of us. And, you know, there's the sensibility of I'm in Los Angeles because my business in entertainment brought me here. And you come to learn the more you read about the history, uh, especially ecologically of this place, is that a city shouldn't be here because there's no water. You, you, you know, you develop a civilization where there's water and where there's salt and cod. And then you go from there. Then you find uh, a place where you can buy athletic shoes and you're good to go. Yeah. Not only not only do we have an incredible expanse of lawns, but we probably have the the most car washes per capita of anywhere <laughs> in the country, which is just it's so backwards. And that's part of what this book is about is is trying to pull us out of our human solipsism where we sort of see ourselves as the center of everything and remember that we're part of all of this creation around us. And I, I love uh, Richard Powers has a great novel called The Overstory, which a couple of years ago he won a Pulitzer for in fiction. Um, he does an amazing job of sort of looking at our civilization from the point of view of the trees. And he brings the reader around to think, oh, yeah, like if you're the trees, we probably look pretty stupid <laughs> because <laughs> the trees are amazing at figuring out what they need to survive. And they, it turns out they actually talk to each other underground mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. through the communication networks of their roots and, and the microorganisms and the fungi. And to, so, so to look at ourselves from the point of view of Mother Nature or the planet, it's it kind of changes everything. It makes me want to shop on uh, Amazon a lot less mm-hmm. and maybe pay attention to my family and my garden and the birds in my yard. I um, I read an interview where someone asked you 
what Ron Swanson, your character from Parks and Rec, what Ron Swanson would make of something? And your answer was, you should ask the people who wrote the character Ron Swanson. Um, what is that like for you to be so closely identified with this really iconic TV character who does not necessarily have the same political beliefs that you do? I mean, your Wikipedia page has a whole section about how you're not a libertarian. <laughs> That's funny. I, I, um, I can't remember when I've ever looked at my Wikipedia page and now you've reminded me why mm. I shouldn't. <laughs> um, first and foremost, there's been no greater professional gift in my life than Ron Swanson. I mean, the the writers of that show led by Mike Schur and, and Greg Daniels initially uh, created a show full of empathy and, and goodness and, um, and equanimity between people, despite our beliefs. That was the sort of core of the show. And so while, uh, you know, Ron's libertarianism was often used to make humorous points. I think the show and I both agree that libertarianism has a, a lot of great ideas on paper, but in practice, it just is impractical. That's why it's never even begun to get a toehold. Like, it, it makes sense in general, but mm -hmm. if you try to enact true libertarianism, anarchy will soon reign and will and will devolve into chaos. Uh if, if you step back from the politics on paper, I feel like Ron and I share a lot of ideologies, uh, respect for all people, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of empathy, a lot of liberal thinking, I think, is allied with libertarianism, that everyone should be allowed to like what they like, to do what they do, as long as it's not hurting other people and their property. And so... It, one of the things I, I tout in my book is nuance, you know, mm -hmm. something we've lost in in this Twitter generation is the ability to say, hang on, pretty much every conversation is way more complicated than the media makes it out to be. And so even me versus Ron is, is very complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think in most points, we both come down on the side of, of goodness and uh, love for our fellow persons. I I appreciate vegetarians. Uh, Ron doesn't. I love Canada and Europe, unlike Ron. Uh, but other than that, <laughs> we're, we're, we're pretty well lined up. Um, the third part of this book involves you and your wife, Megan Mullally, uh, launching out on a, um, a cross-country road trip in an Airstream. And I'm just kind of wondering what the looks on the faces are of the people that are at a gas station when an Airstream pulls up and... <laughs> You know, Ron Swanson and uh, and Karen from Will and Grace climb out and go in, you know, to buy some beef jerky or something. Uh, was it blowing people's minds to see you two together out there on the road? Or do they even realize, who, you know, what you guys do for your job stuff? Well, one great advantage of the pandemic or one silver lining, I guess I should say, is that uh, the masks allow us to travel much more freely in public mm -hmm. than, than previously. Megan uh, looks very little like Karen Walker. Uh, she, sure. she, she was clowning pretty hard in that role. She's got a, a hairpiece and a voice and a whole situation going on. So people generally don't spot her, uh, at all anyway. And me with the mask, the only disturbing part is I'll line up behind somebody at the grocery store and, and nobody has spotted me. And then I say, can I please get uh, eight of those bratwurst and then heads snap around and right. and it gets really weird because like when I was hiking on trails, I mean, I would say like, good, good afternoon. And people would be like, Nick Offerman. <laughs> and, and I'd be wow. in a, a mask and sunglasses and hat. And I would just say, that's so crazy. Uh, Cause it just, you know, of course it just sounds like me to me. Um, but but uh, by and large, we were able to keep a low profile, which is good because in RV parks, your neighbors are often mere feet away. And right. so, and if, if you're both there for a few days, and words spread throughout the tumble in outside of Marfa <laughs> that you're that, that that these two Hollywood types are there, you could be in for a lot of visits that maybe you weren't necessarily looking to have. Yeah, people roll in with martinis and, and scotch and bacon. <laughs> right. Um, one of the things that's really relatable in this book is is writing about uh, traveling out to visit with your family and having this sort of outdoor get together. And, you know, 
again, I think so many of us can now relate to this where you're, you're in a family, but everyone has different ideas of what safe behaviors are, how important masking is, or if they're going to get the vaccine or not. Um, what's your, having been through this, what's your personal advice for folks? Or, or, or how do you think about that idea of trying to keep these family connections strong when, when there are disagreements about things that feel so extant to us? Like they just feel absolutely existential, the threat of non-masking or not vaxxing if you're, you know, if you're somebody that believes like the way I do. It's, you know, it's a really tough question and it makes me grateful specifically for Jeff and George. Uh, I, you know, in the last few months I've been working as an actor and I had an, I had an experience on a, in a tram car at the Atlanta airport mm. with a guy demonstrably pulling his mask down and making eye contact with me in an aggressive wow. way. And it was a very crowded car and he was halfway across and I was tugging on my mask as if to say, hey, please put your mask up. And he and he tugged it, it below his chin to, to basically say, you know, stick it where the sun doesn't shine. And thankfully, I had just been listening to George Saunders on a podcast <laughs> talk about how we're all broken machines. Like human beings mm. are all animals of misperception. Um, it, it's mm. a very Buddhist notion that everything we see or think about the world is our brain putting together – our sort of uh, Cliff's Notes version of, of whatever scene we might be in. And so we're always wrong. We're always doing our best to take those perceptions and say, okay, with what I've learned in my life, I'm going to use these, these incorrect perceptions to try and not hurt anybody or myself or, you know, get evicted from my apartment, et cetera. <laughs> and so I was able to look at this guy and just think, well, I don't know what is making you be such a jerk right now, but uh, you must be in some kind of pain. I'm going to try, you know, and just thinking, just just questioning that. I I found no solution, but it allowed me to sidetrack the pugilism that was instead of instead of being like, how can I punch you in the face as soon as possible? Instead, I was thinking, what the hell is the matter with you and us and so whether it's with my family or not, I had a driver recently on a film job who I discovered wasn't vaccinated and he got really upset and started telling me a lot of conspiracy theory information. Mm. 15,000 people have died from the vaccine. Mm. He doesn't need the vaccine because he eats a lot of fruit and mm. just all, all this <laughs> stuff. Where I, And I kept breathing deeply and saying, listen, man, I know that you know that's not true. A. Mm. B, I don't know what it is in you that makes you want to take that stance, but C, we're in a film company together and that and it could be a family or a neighborhood or whoever, a school. And regardless of whatever's making you take this stance, we know scientifically that in this film company, we can wear a mask and we can get vaccinated. That'll protect us from this virus. This is all just straight science that'll allow us to make this TV show together. It's that simple. Yeah. So, so we, can, we can live. We can live and prosper. And so when I wear a mask or I get vaccinated, it's certainly it's to preserve myself. But there's also an element of affection, even for you, my dingbat driver, who I don't even know. <laughs> right. I give a shit uh, about, about whether you're going to live yourself and or take down the tribe. Um, I love uh, – there's a great podcast called On Being with Krista Tippett. Sure. That I, I think fi- it used to be called Speaking of Faith, and they decided that it was a little too specific, so now it's On Being. That was a smart move because <laughs> Speaking of Faith might have not have swung me over. But yeah. uh, it's, it's so wonderfully calming with uh, this kind of sensibility of mm. how can we try to help each other and make more things than we destroy. Mm. Uh, you ask in this book, like if there's sort of a right way to use nature, I'm wondering if after spending so much time in nature and really thinking about it the way you have, if you're any closer, um, to having some sort of answer to that question, at least for yourself. It's, I mean, again, that's that there's a lot of nuance to that question. And, uh, I think the first thing to do is examine that verb, the way we use nature and, and instead, try to remember that we exist in nature and that, uh, that nature also uses us. Um, and, and basically seek humility. I mean, 
in the agrarian ideal, it's it's all fine and dandy to do a lot of shopping and and be material and participate in capitalism. But if those systems, if we send our money to fossil fuel companies or corporations that provide our goods, we give them our agency. We, we give them our vote in a sense to say, here's my money. I assume you're going to be cool uh, with the way you're extracting that coal or putting these Mauritius citizens to work, sewing these jeans or whatever it is. And it's, uh, it's simply paying attention. Um, I know that uh, there's a volatility to the term woke, but I'm a big fan of the term woke because I, I just uh, perceive it as meaning you open your eyes and pay attention to the effects of what you yourself are doing. Mm. What are you consuming? Um, you know, the things that come into your household and into your life, where do they come from? Who makes them? Is it meat? Let's just look at meat. Mm-hmm. How are they treating their animals? How are they treating uh, their their grazing system? Are they creating a lot of carbon or are they a carbon sink? And then the waste that leaves you and your household, where does that go? So, I mean, have an idea of your responsibility. And I think pretty quickly uh, that can turn into the way we vote. And ultimately, paying attention to our farmers and the people who are stewards of the land, the people who actually have an awareness of the health of us in nature, uh, that's who we need to vote for. Uh, this book kind of started with a conversation between you and Wendell Berry. Has he actually um, had a chance to look at the book yet? No. Uh, I, I just... Are you nervous for him to read it? With the amount of obvious respect you have for this guy's work, I feel oh like I'd God. be stressed to send him my book. <laughs> yeah. I've, I have been in the past. Uh, I, I'm very nervous, but I've gotten past it to the point where now we know each other. So... <laughs> It's it's like when I'm writing, I often will think, well, this is this is not a very good uh, jur- piece of journalism that you're writing. I should really go to the library for a few months. And then I think, oh, hang on. Nobody is coming to me for the definitive point of view of, of Ben Franklin's life. Uh, if I can make you laugh and maybe turn you on to a little more true American history, that's mm-hmm. my job. And so knowing that, I, I just sent Wendell and Tanya their copy of my book, and I, th- I think I inscribed it. Uh, I remain very grateful that I'm allowed to tinkle behind your barn, uh, <laughs> and that's that's kind of how I feel. Is like I'm a member of the of their uh, circle on the outskirts, and I'm like well, I'm not gonna. I may have to pee in the woods, but I'm not going to let anybody see me. So <laughs> you might not have a lot of use for me, but at least I shouldn't hurt your feelings. Well, as a tinkle that happened behind the barn, I think this is a hell of a book. It's where the deer and the antelope play the pastoral observations of one ignorant American who loves to walk outside by Nick Offerman. Nick, thank you so much for coming on Livewire. My pleasure. It's really nice to talk to you all. Woo-hoo. That was Nick Offerman right here on LiveWire, his book, Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, The Pastoral Observations of One Ignorant American Who Loves to Walk Outside, is out now. Uh, And also Nick has been cast in the upcoming Amazon reboot of A League of Their Own. Oh, I hope he's playing uh, the Madonna role. (laughs) (laughs) I I saw him more as Laurie Petty's character, but I'm sure whatever role they throw his way, he will absolutely nail it. And if you want to hear the full version of our conversation with Nick Offerman, uh, go ahead and check out our podcast over there at LiveWireRadio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this is LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. That is Elena Passarello. Our musical guest this hour has earned critical acclaim for her gothic indie blues following the 2016 release of her debut album, Beyond the Bloodhounds. Uh, now she's up to album number three, which is titled A Southern Gothic. It was executive produced by the legendary producer T-Bone Burnett, and it is out and available right now. Adia Victoria, welcome to Livewire. Howdy. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I want to start with asking you about the photo on the cover of your new album. Uh, is that you? That is me. It's me at five years old. Oh. <laughs> uh, what was your story at five years old, and why did you pick that photo for the cover of this album? 
So that photo was taken of me by my grandmother, Betty Ann. Um, I'm sitting on the sofa of my Aunt Pinky's uh, house in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And I've always, one, I've always loved that picture of me. I mean, you uh-huh. know, my whole life, I'm like, that's a, that's a sharp looking little girl. <laughs> but I, I love the look on my face. I love the kind of daring, just that knowing confidence of this little girl who is looking back at the camera, the observer with just as much like confidence that she sees you and she's looking at you. I just feel in that picture, I'm just like totally self-possessed of the magic and the all of the world before it, you know, destroyed <laughs> yeah. that in me. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to your podcast, uh, Call and Response. You were talking to Trey Burt about writing music when you're doing your job that's not music related. And mm-hmm. you mentioned that you wrote some of this album, A Southern Gothic, while you were working at an Amazon Fulfillment Center? Yes, I was working at an Amazon warehouse. Uh, I packed grocery orders over the course mm-hmm. of the pandemic. I actually applied for the job while I was still in Paris before everything kind of blew up. I, uh, this was like January of last year, February. I was like, I know I'm going to be home. I'm not going to be um, touring. I'm just going to be writing a new record. And my mo- most of my money is made through touring. So I was like, I'll just get a little day job. And um, yeah, the pandemic hit. And I found that writing and just staying very focused on the rhythms that my body was making while walking, it allowed me to not be stressed or anxious. And it was the perfect environment for me to just tell stories to myself. Did you get into sort of a Zen place of of doing this physical stuff, but like your mind being able to go somewhere special as far as creating music? Yeah, that was exactly what it was. I I needed to give my body something to do because last year, I think me and so many other people, we were just terrified by the implications of bodies, you know, of mm-hmm. just like, did you breathe on me? Did you sneeze on me? Was that a cough? What was that? Or are you six feet away from me? How many inches? You know, and so I felt disassociated from my body and, it, and it, my body was a symbol of terror last year. And so working at that job, you know, it allowed me to walk and make a little pocket change and my mind was completely divorced from what my body was doing. It was just like, body's doing this, it's doing this this repetitive task, and my mind is just able to let itself off its leash. But I, I felt a weird synchronicity between my body and my mind. That was strange, but I got an album out of it, so. Yeah, you did. And it's a great one, too, yeah. by the way. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Adia Victoria. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere, because when we come back, we'll actually hear a song off this new album. So stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello, and we're talking to Adia Victoria. Uh, let's talk about your podcast. What are you hoping to explore uh, with your podcast that has not been explored by the 7 billion other podcasts, including this one, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> called Livewire, when we're not on the radio? Um, you know, I'm not looking for my podcast to do anything specific to set itself apart. I I had the opportunity, you know, Sonos presented the opportunity to me last uh, fall, and I I realized that I my social muscles were atrophying and <laughs> I was doing a lot of work about the South and doing a lot of work about investigating the the landscape that I grew up on and in and around and how that influenced me, how did that call out to me? And I thought about the communal aspect of the blues, like, you know, my people in the deep south, how so much of them holding onto their humanity was going into deep um communion with the land around them and the people that were forced to work the land next to them. And that's the blues to me is just finding that community, even in, you know, atmospheres of death. And so I wanted the, I wanted the conversations to have that spirit of the blues where you're able to investigate, you know, where you came from, how that, how that influenced your art, how that influenced, you know, your culture. And yeah, just maybe ask conversations that a lot of people don't ask on the surface of things. 
All right, so we are going to hear a song off of uh, your latest album, A Southern Gothic. What song uh, are you going to play, Adia? I'm going to play for y'all um, this song called My Oh My. And this song was kind of the seed of the album uh, that I began to conceptualize around. Uh, I wrote the song in Paris in 2019 at the end of my last tour. I was out on the road with Colexco and Iron and Wine. And mm. I was in Paris with my friends, my friend Stone Jack Jones, my creative partner, Mason Hickman, and one of our collaborators, Marcello Giuliani. And Stone Jack had a refrain and he was like, I don't have anything to write around it. And so we went to Marcello's house, he made us pasta, and I had a book of Eudora Welty short stories. And while the, the guys were making the music in a loop, I was reading and just finding phrases that spoke to me. And uh, from that came the story of a girl who disappears in the South and her, her sister is remarking on her absences and just the way that she's still present in the South around. All right, well, let's hear My Oh My from Adia Victoria here on Livewire.
That is Adia Victoria here on Livewire playing a song off of her new album, A Southern Gothic. Wow, that is really beautiful. Gorgeous. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you. Thank you for having me. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. Uh, we're going to provide you uh, with a little ear candy for the Halloween season. Filmmakers Christina Constantini and Kareem Topsh will reveal the man behind the cape in their Netflix documentary, Mucho Mucho Amor, about famed Puerto Rican astrologer Walter Mercado. If you are me and Elena's age, Walter Mercado was just like everywhere on TV because he was always on Donahue yeah, and stuff. It's just like an absolutely fascinating character. Uh, we're also going to talk to Anais Mitchell. She'll take us on a journey to the underworld of Greek mythology. Ooh, Halloween times. To discuss her Tony award-winning folk opera, Town. And of course, as always, we're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? We want to know what was your most memorable Halloween costume that we can talk about on the radio? (laughs) I know what mine is because it's the only time I ever dressed up. (laughs) All right. uh, If you have an answer to that question, your most memorable Halloween costume, send it along via Twitter or Facebook. We are at LiveWire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Phoebe Robinson, Nick Offerman, and Adia Victoria. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Martin Worm of Seattle. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. <laughs>